Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. On this Thursday night, we find out how scientists in Australia are trying to resurrect the Tasmanian tiger, nearly 90 years after the last of its kind died in captivity at a zoo in Tasmania. How will they do it? Find out. We speak to a doctor at the University of British Columbia who successfully found a so-called weak spot or Achilles heel common to all variants of COVID-19, potentially paving the way for treatments that would be effective across all variants. Scotland this week became the first place in the world to enact legislation to make menstrual products free of charge in public facilities. We ask, should Canada do the same? But first, we look into what's causing a nationwide shortage of cold and flu medicine for kids, why it's a concern with back to school around the corner, and what parents should know. Well, first up tonight, you may have seen reports this week about a nationwide shortage of children's cold and flu medicine. Pharmacies have been dealing with back orders for both tablets and liquid suspension, children's Tylenol, acetaminophen, and Advil, ibuprofen for quite a while now. Uh, Supply again low for months, and it's impacted availability of both name brands and generic brand products. Here's what one mum told Global Toronto this week. It's scary. Tylenol, Advil, it's almost impossible. I found it at Costco and you could see like it was being like picked through so quickly. What's gonna happen? They spike a fever at like 1 a.m. We have to go and sit in an emergency room. Yeah, she's referring there at the end to uh, something that Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto put out this week, asking parents for a subscription uh, for some of these items that are in short supply. And that's been talked about quite a bit. It's not common, I don't believe. Uh, and with back to school around the corner, of course, which typically sees an uptick in colds, flus and other diseases uh, because of the, the way they spread in closed spaces like classrooms. Uh, how much cause for concern is it? For parents right now. Joining me now with more on this is Justin Bates. He's CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Thanks for your time tonight. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's great to be with you. So what is going on? Well, what we're seeing over the last couple of months is unprecedented demand for these products. And uh, well, we haven't seen this before because much of what uh, usually occurs is the seasonal components to these viruses. So going back to school in the fall, winter, we get spikes in, in demand, but we don't normally see as many people getting sick during the summer months. And that's really what we have here. It's a demand side rather than a supply interruption or any global supply chain challenges, which we have seen with other product shortages and medications in particular. Interesting. Um, how widespread is this? Well, it is widespread. It's across the yeah. country. Um, you're going to see varying degrees of uh, inventory uh, in pharmacies and other retail establishments. These products actually are unscheduled, which means that they don't require a prescription. Um, they're not actually an over-the-counter or behind-the-counter product um, and regulated as such. So being unscheduled, you can sell them in a convenience store, at a gas bar, um, also in a, in a pharmacy. So it is widespread. Um, and we are hopeful and, and monitoring the situation by talking to the drug manufacturer to ensure that they replenish the supply as quickly as possible. But it's not easy to turn a switch on because they look at trends over uh, a long period of time and to ramp up production very quickly is definitely a challenge. 
Yeah, I would imagine in this case, I mean, they've had the same sort of uh, cadence to the sales of these products for ages. As you mentioned before, you know, back to school, you see a bit of a spike. I always remember there was always a lot more of these products on the shelves heading into this back to school period, as opposed to the bare shelves we're seeing now. Um, what are what are you hearing from your members? Are they are they all equally sort of getting, um, you know, putting it on the shelves and having it cleared out? Is that is that a problem, too, that people are sort of taking what they can get when they see it? Yes, and I think the last 72 hours, what we've seen is the phenomenon, I like to call the toilet paper phenomenon, and not to make light of the situation, but you do see panic buying, and we've seen that throughout the pandemic, and uh, with notices going out uh, and memos making recommendations to parents uh, about how to access the product, we saw a rush into pharmacies, uh, lots of questions, and that um, exasperated the the challenge because it increased demand, and we did have chewables available um, as recently as a day ago, uh, and now they're in short supply. And many pharmacies have behind the counter a larger volume, what we call a stock bottle, and they take that uh, often for prescriptions because that does happen um, from discharge a hospital or uh, from a, a primary care physician. They'll write a prescription even for an OTC that can be covered by a drug plan. And uh, those larger bottles are then uh, put into lower volume uh, bottles labeled and dosed appropriately and even that's out Um, so what we're looking at now is other alternatives to help people uh, combat this when their child has pain or a fever yeah i I mean again you you always run into that that problem where you want the population to know at the same time you don't want them to panic and that's always a tough call right or a tough tough line to walk it is you want to increase awareness and you want to put in measures to ration when you know that there are challenges you need to, to mitigate those so that nobody is going without um, and I think the, the the awareness and the public awareness did create a bit of that rush to make sure people have it at home in case in the fall it's still not available and they have a child who happens to be uh, in pain or need uh, this treatment for a fever. I think it's, it's important to note that there still are options, um, one of which is the regular and extra strength, uh, which typically adults use in the tablet form. And uh, if you speak to your healthcare provider and your pharmacist, they will explain to you how to uh, dose that for your child because it does have to be cut uh, in half. Um, But there's also opportunity to crush that um, pill and again, dosing it appropriately for the weight and age of the child and put that into something like applesauce because we know that tablet form uh, can be challenging for children to swallow. Um, So that's what we're encouraging people to do. And pharmacists are counseling parents and and patients on exactly how to manage through this uh, and navigate through the, the shortage. Yeah, I still have memories of way back when being given, you know, quarter pieces of aspirin, that sort of chalky, chalky aspirin, which is awful compared to the children's aspirin I was used to at the time. Um, you mentioned earlier that there, there might not be relief in sight, but it's hard always to predict. Uh, but do you have any sense from other experiences uh, over the past while just how long it might take uh, for them to ramp up product, or at least try to make up for what's missing? Well, we're hearing uh, early to mid-fall, so that puts us out uh, a month uh, approximately, uh, at least before we'll see uh, a significant replenishment and and on the shelf more of these uh, products that we're used to seeing. Um, That uh, also takes into account uh, if we have a normal uh, seasonal uh, virus spread in in the fall. If we start to see another wave of COVID and outbreak, um, then that could 
further uh, exasperate the situation as demand will continue to increase. Because a large part of this, I think, is contributed to the fact that we're now out and about. We are, you know, in large congregate settings without masks. A lot of the public health measures across the country, if not completely eliminated, have been greatly reduced. And that has increased the exposure and viruses are coming back and they're coming back earlier than they typically would which I think is, is one of the factors why demand is, is definitely increasing during the summer months when we typically don't see these viruses uh, as prevalent. Justin Bates is with us this half hour. He's the CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. We're talking about this nationwide shortage of cold and flu medicine for kids, both brand and generic brands or generic ones as well. Um, and just what's behind it, demand. Uh, it's been apparently a nasty season for flus and colds for kids over the summer. We don't see that traditionally, so companies have been having a hard time keeping up with demand. Uh, Justin, we know we're heading into the school year, and this is when demand tends to go back up. Uh, any concerns about about just what might happen? Uh, as you mentioned earlier, you talked about potentially a new wave of COVID, but uh, just the normal stuff that we see uh, at this time of year, or, you know, coming up next month. Uh, any concern about, about not having enough and that sort of exacerbating this problem further into the fall? It certainly could be one scenario that we experience uh, with the typical seasonal viruses around cold and flu. Um, Hopefully that's not combated by a a further uh, outbreak of uh, COVID with a subvariant. But certainly there is a cause for concern. It's going to take uh, some time for production and manufacturing to ramp up. Um, But we remain optimistic based on our conversations with the manufacturers that they will be able to restock uh, the shelves. And, you know, I think there's uh, certainly going to be a continued emphasis on rationing. Um, and when we do have inventory on the shelves, maybe there'll be uh, mechanisms like only having one package or one bottle per family so that uh, we can avoid some of the uh, you know, panic buying and hoarding and stockpiling that we've seen uh, thus far. Right. What kind of advice do you have for parents? I mean, the big one is please don't hoard and please don't panic, right, obviously. But uh, what sort of practical advice should parents should parents know now when they encounter sort of empty shelves or worry about what might happen? Yeah, that's a great question because I do know there there's concerns. I have kids myself. And uh, whenever you hear uh, that something as important as this is in short supply, people people worry and they want to know, what are the alternatives? Where should I go? And what, what, where do I get this advice from? So I'd say first and foremost, talk to your healthcare provider, talk to your primary care physician, talk to your pharmacist, um, seek those options that they counsel you with. Um, it's really important that people follow the label and instructions uh, for proper dosing. So if you're going to crush a pill or uh, take the what is essentially an adult strength with regular and extra strength, Tylenol and Advil, uh, then you need to make sure you're dosing it appropriately so that uh, you don't run into any adverse events with your child. So they look at uh, things like weight and age, um, and, and that'll be really important. The other thing to remember, too, and I think this is important to emphasize, is that not in all cases, because you have a high temperature, do you necessarily need to treat it. Now, obviously, if you're having uh, you know moderate to severe symptoms, then that's where you would look for these types of products. But most uh, fevers will start to subside after 24 hours and are gone by 72 hours. And there's other, you know, non-medical remedies, uh, such as, you know, cold cloth and things of that nature, rest. um, And if it's pain-related, icing or heating, depending on where the injury is or elevating the injured area. So those would be the um, sort of simple things to try first. 
but always talk to your healthcare provider to get the best advice on what the alternatives are. And Justin, one of the things I always think about is that, you know, there's a lot of pills in those packages, right? And, and chances are, you know, a child won't need all of them, I suppose, and this would be within limits, but you can always share amongst family and close friends and so on. Yeah, and I think, again, it's uh, important to talk to that healthcare provider to understand if it's an adult dose, such as a regular strength, you know, take uh, ibuprofen, for example, at 200 milligrams or 400 at extra strength, and it's a tablet form to make sure that you're not giving the child the full dose and that you're cutting that pill in half, uh, and hopefully they will be able to uh, swallow it. I mean, that's typically the biggest challenge with kids, uh, the taste and having to swallow a pill. Uh, which is why the liquid form is uh, usually preferred. But these are the types of options of crushing that at a half dose of the regular or extra strength, putting it into uh, some other foods that uh, essentially hide that taste and uh, will still be able to administer the uh, medication. So there's different tricks in trade, but you want to make sure that dosing is clinically appropriate. Justin Bates, uh, I guess we'll we'll be at this for a little while longer, but uh, good to hear that you, uh, you're optimistic that things will probably get back to something like normal uh, sometime in the fall. Thanks so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. I now pronounce you devil and devilish. Yeah, when we think of Tasmania and animals, the first thing that often comes to mind, in no small thanks to the legendary Bugs Bunny and Looney Tunes, is the Tasmanian Devil. But up until about a century ago, there was something called the Tasmanian Tiger. It's not a tiger at all. It's a striped carnivorous marsupial about the size of a coyote. It was an apex predator. It was considered a costly pest, especially since it was blamed for attacks on livestock, it turns out, uh, in an unwarranted fashion. In fact, many many millennia ago, they existed in a lot of places, but they ended up only being in Tasmania. And then it was basically hunted out of existence. The last living one, I believe, in captivity, who had a great name, Benjamin, died from exposure in 1936 at at a zoo in Hobart in Tasmania. Well, now scientists are working to resurrect the Tasmanian tiger. How will they do it? Let's find out. Joining me now is Andrew Pask. He's a professor of biosciences at the University of Melbourne and the head of its Tylosin Integrated Genetic Restoration Research Lab and is leading this initiative. Thanks so much for your time. I hope I pronounced the correct name of the, of the uh, tiger correctly. Tylosin. Yeah, you did. Oh, great. Okay. So why this animal in particular? Just a bit about its history and why it was fascinating uh, as a place to start with this. Yeah, well, you did a great job of talking about the history of the Tassie tiger, but it was this this really tragic tale of this human-driven extinction where we've hunted this animal, completely wiped it out, persecuted for killing sheep, but actually wasn't eating sheep at all. It turned out it was the farmers were stealing each other's sheep and blaming it on the Tasmanian tiger. So they just completely obliterated this really incredibly unique animal. And it actually was essential for helping stabilise the entire ecosystem in Tasmania. So you played that clip at the beginning with the Tasmanian devil. Tasmanian devils actually almost went extinct uh, in the last decade because they got this terrible facial tumour disease. And that's because these animals get infected with this virus and they persist in the population and they spread it very rapidly throughout those animals. But when you have an apex predator like the Tasmanian tiger around, 
they actually pick up and eat those sick animals and they prevent them from spreading the disease so quickly. So if we had our Tasmanian tiger, we potentially would have prevented the Tasmanian devil from nearly going extinct in the wild. So these animals are really, really important to return back if we have the technology to do so. And therein lies the, 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 the wonder of this story is that you are, in fact, looking at resurrecting um, the Tasmanian tiger gone since 1936. How can that be done? Yeah, so this was something that was still in the realms of science fiction, you know, even a decade ago. But it has really been in the last 10 years that we've come so far in our ability to sequence DNA, particularly from old museum specimens, and then also edit DNA. And they're the two critical things that you really need to be able to do to think about trying to bring a species like this back. Where do you start? I mean, where do you start even? So you start with, with this process of, of genetic editing, um, but there must yeah. be a whole long process that you need to go through, um, to, including, you know, how do you reintroduce it? How do you have, who gives birth to it, I guess, is the most obvious yeah. way of putting yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's, it's a very complicated procedure to go through. So we still can't create life where there isn't any. So for animals that have gone and are extinct, we can't reanimate those tissues or those cells to, to you know, completely get that animal back. So what we have to do is we have to look around nature to find an animal that's still alive today that is a close living relative of the Tasmanian tiger. And in our case, it's a very small little mouse-sized marsupial, also a carnivore, um, called a fat-tailed gunnart. And then once we've, got, we've identified what that animal is, we sequence all of its DNA, we sequence the DNA from our Tasmanian tiger, and then we compare their genomes and we figure out everywhere where their DNA code is different. And then we take our living cells from our, from our fat-tailed gunnart and we edit in all of those changes. So we're essentially engineering our gunnart genome now to be that of the Tasmanian tiger. And at the end, you're left with the Tasmanian tiger cell that you can then use sort of cloning techniques and IVF techniques to turn that cell back into a whole living animal that we can then look at doing the next step, which you talked about, which is that reintroduction back into the environment. Remarkable. So essentially you're taking a cousin or a small cousin, needless to say, uh, and, and, yeah. and bring, bring, bringing the other, uh, the other cousin back to life. So, I mean, that's a very non-scientific way of putting it. Um, <laughs> what, are the, what are the challenges that still exist? I mean, you mentioned them already, but what are the challenges that stand between you and success right now? One of the questions you asked was about the surrogacy. So one of the great things about marsupials is that they give birth to such tiny, tiny little babies. So they're about right. the size of a grain of rice when they're born. A Tasmanian tiger, as well as a little mouse-sized um, fat-tailed gunnart. So one of the great things for us is we could get even our little mouse-sized marsupial to be a surrogate mum for a Tasmanian tiger, something that's going to grow as big as a Tassie tiger in the end because they give birth to those babies when they're so, so tiny. And also, we're able to grow their embryos in culture, so they don't actually even need to go into a surrogate if we if we can, you know, get that that whole process of them growing in culture figured out. And so that's really it's a big advantage for bringing back a marsupial. It's much easier to grow something tiny than it is to grow something really big. And so uh, that that's a really great advantage. There is a lot of DNA editing that needs to be done to turn our gunnart cell back into that that Tasmanian tiger genome. But that's where we've just recently partnered with Colossal, a huge biotech company in the US that are really developing and pushing the boundaries of how good we can do those DNA edits and how quickly we can do those DNA edits. So we're confident now in partnership with them that we should be able to, to you know, this will be a much easier task 
to get all of those edits done to ourselves to actually to, to have that, that, you know, starting material to start to bring those whole animals back. What are, I mean, what are the broader implications of this? Because clearly, if this works, um, reintroducing certain animals into an ecosystem where they provided a benefit, uh, both, I guess there's both upsides and downsides to that. We don't know what happens when we mess with nature, so to speak. But uh, what yeah. are the broader implications of this when, when you look forward? So I think, you know, a lot of comments we get is that you shouldn't be messing around with nature like this. And I think my argument to that is, well, we certainly mess with nature when we wipe the thylacine out in the first place. So it's only right. the Tasmanian tiger. And we certainly continue to do it when we remove, you know, massive tracts of habitat. So I would think by trying to restore some of those species, we're really trying to correct some of those wrongs. There is DNA in specimens that are more than a couple of million years old, so we don't have to worry about bringing back T-Rexes or Velociraptors or anything like that. Right. So I can, you know... Dispel those rumours that those things are not possible. But the animals, like you said, that have gone recently extinct and played a really important role in an ecosystem, there is a really good, uh, you know, imperative, I think, to try and bring these species back. In fact, I think we owe it to those species. If it's a human-driven extinction, if we have the ability to bring those animals back, I think we owe it to those animals to try and return them back into those ecosystems. But you have to look at each individual animal and figure out, you know, does it fit the criteria? of wanting to do this. So is it a human-driven extinction? Do we have really good DNA resources for that animal so we can rebuild its genome? And is there somewhere to put that animal when we bring it back? So one of the great things with the Cavie Tiger is, you know, it's only been gone for 86 years. The ecosystem still exists in Tasmania where it lives. And so if we put it back there, it's got that same food network, you know, everything's around to enable it to thrive once again back in that environment. Andrew, thank you for that because I get to cross out my my question. Jurassic Park fears that was that was my last question, so I'm going to take that one out now. Um, what's what's really interesting, I guess, about this and reading more about the Tasmanian tiger, tiger is because of it's almost like a controlled experiment because of where it lived and what it is, uh, as opposed to trying yeah. to reintroduce something in a much broader uh, in a much broader geography, for instance. Yeah, having it on an isolated island population is really nice because. It is contained when you release those animals. But there's, there's potentially, you know, even conservation benefits of, of releasing that animal again on the mainland of Australia. They used to be all over mainland Australia. And, you know, now we have all sorts of issues with introduced pest species such as rabbits and cats and foxes. And these are all the types of animals that, are, that a Tasmanian tiger would eat. And so they could play, you know, even a role in helping control invasive pest species back on the mainland again one day unfairly targeted back then perhaps uh to be seen once again perhaps benjamin at the uh, zoo was in hobart was not the last of its kind uh, andrew pass thank you so much what a fascinating uh project you're working on look forward to catching up and seeing what happens next thanks for having me you're all familiar with the notion of an achilles heel a vulnerable place that can bring down even the most powerful force well imagine if the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID, happened to have an Achilles heel of its own. Well, researchers at the University of British Columbia have discovered a key vulnerability across all major variants of the virus, including the recently emerged BA1 and BA2 Omicron subvariants. A study published in the journal Nature Communication says researchers at UBC's Faculty of Medicine have identified a single weak spot of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the one that causes COVID-19. 
That spot is common to all seven known strains, including the surging Omicron variants. The weak spot can accept an antibody fragment, sort of a master key, capable of neutralizing any of the virus variants. The lead author of the study says the discovery could unlock a whole new realm of treatments, potentially effective against current or future variants of the virus that has taken almost 6.5 million lives worldwide. Beth Layton, the Canadian Press, Vancouver. Now, the senior author that was mentioned in that piece is Dr. Sriram Subramaniam, and he's a professor at UBC's Faculty of Medicine, and he joins us now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. So just to start at the beginning, what were you setting out to find specifically? You know, in the last uh, two and a half years or so, we have been working on uh, SARS-CoV-2, and frankly, we had never, in my lab, had never worked on coronaviruses before. I, I came to UBC to work on cancer drug design. That's the uh, the chair position that I hold. But soon after I came, you know, we, uh, we got hit with COVID-19. So through the building of my lab and uh, various phases, we realized that uh, this is what we had to do. So we, as we worked on COVID-19, we kept our focus on two things that we knew were certain to happen. One is that the virus would mutate because this is what viruses uh, like SARS-CoV-2 do. Uh, and as they mutated, we knew the second thing that would happen is that there would be antibody evasion, meaning that as new variants emerge, they would no longer be effectively neutralized by antibodies that were good in the previous iteration of the virus. So this is uh, these are lessons we learned from various other infectious viruses. And I had worked on uh, HIV for nearly a decade and also influenza for some time and Ebola. So this is the playbook of these viruses is exactly this, mutations and antibody escape. So we began to focus our efforts to use these very advanced tools for molecular imaging, uh, cryo-electron microscopy, to begin to generate atomic resolution pictures, literally an atomic view of how the spike protein that sits on the surface of the virus engages with our cells to get in, and also with our antibodies when it gets blocked. So we determine at, uh, these high resolution images in 3D, an atom by atom view, if you will, of all of the variants that we've seen to date, the, uh, you know, the alpha variant, the, the beta, the gamma, the the Kappa, all of those, uh, including the Omicron, which we posted uh, in a paper in Science earlier this year. But throughout this journey of the virus, we also saw the other narrative was antibodies that were successful in blocking entry of the virus uh, began, began to show vulnerabilities as antibodies, especially with the Omicron variant. Many of the antibodies that were used in treatments for earlier variants were no longer so effective. So one of the driving sort of ideas in the field is to identify approaches to neutralize not just one variant or the other, but the, you know, the, the hope of finding a way to deal with all the variants that have come so far and effectively really anticip anticipating uh, anticipating where the virus is going to head. And so that's where our present paper comes in. 
Right. We, so you're really looking for for and not to use to use a very unscientific term, but you're really looking for the for the the Achilles heel that transcends these different variants, uh, the, the things that would still what the antibodies that would still continue to work across all these variants. Yeah. So it, it's a it's a I think it's a very appropriate description of what what we're after, which is the Achilles heel or uh, what we call the weak spot. That interestingly enough is is present or has has happened to end up being present across the variants that we've seen over the last uh, two and a half years. And what we now that we have an antibody that uh, we can now position and view using these imaging techniques bound to that spot, it gives us a lot of information that we can that we can actually use going forward. So you did in fact find um, different um... Achilles heels or an Achilles heel, so to speak, uh, that transcended these variants. Correct. So this antibody that uh, we call AB6 is an antibody that actually emerged in in a screen that our collaborators carried out uh, nearly two years ago. So these are screens of libraries for antibodies of various kinds. And this was one of many that came out. And at that time, uh, it had you know, it it had you know some level of reactivity to variants that had been there at that time. Uh, there were others like AB1 and AB8, which we posted structures of. But what was remarkable about AB6 is as we tested it with new variants coming out, the fact that it was still able to block the entry of new variants like the Omicron. Uh, that was the that's the interesting part. I guess one of the challenges with the, vac- with the vaccines, of course, is that uh, as they mutate, the vaccines no longer work as well. You compared it to a lock and a key. When the uh, when the lock changes, the key no longer works quite as well. Yeah, yes, exactly. I think you know that's what we always worry about, which is uh, while the vaccines uh, have shown to be quite effective, uh, have proven to be quite effective, as the virus mutates, we always worry that the lock will change in such a way that the key no longer uh, no longer works effectively. And that's exactly what we saw in the early iteration of many commercial antibodies. So to know, so the two pieces to the story are not, I mean, the fact that we have this antibody that we positioned in that spot, but the more important uh, finding is the discovery of this landscape on the surface of the spike protein where we can then zero in our insights and now make a precision strike because uh, we can we have in the last year or two uh, seen developments in artificial intelligence and machine learning methods that let us design really powerful use these powerful methods to design molecules like antibodies that can bind in specific spots. So if you combine these two advances, our ability to visualize an antibody like ABC, antibody fragment, I should say, is still a piece of an antibody that's bound to the site. Use that to make even more potent molecules. Then we are in a very good position to leverage this finding to make molecules that hit really hard at the spot that we can see has been conserved in many of the variants that have come out so far. But we won't, we don't know really whether this will continue to stay this way in future variants, but you know we can only look at the past history as an example. And uh, I think the projection is that we have to keep learning as we go. 
My guest this half hour is Dr. Sri Subramanian. He's a professor at UBC's Faculty of Medicine and the senior author of a study uh, looking into uh, what we could call the Achilles heel of SARS-CoV-2 or the virus that causes COVID. Um, it's been published today in Nature Communications, um, and it really is targeting using something called cryo-electron microscopy and really looks down almost at an atomic level at the spike proteins in COVID to find where antibodies move from or exist in a continuum between each variant. I think I got that right. It's not particularly scientific. Sorry about that, doctor. Um, but what does this mean uh, overall? And, and where do you go from here? Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, as you, as you correctly pointed out, uh, we are indeed looking for antibodies uh, that are pan-variant binding, meaning that they can bind not just one variant, but can bind others. But in order for that to happen, the site that they target and bind on any of these spike proteins needs to be largely unchanged from one variant to the other. And that's actually quite challenging because viruses like SARS-CoV-2 are constantly evolving, constantly mutating. And you know, given that maybe close to a billion people in the world have been infected by SARS-CoV-2, the viruses had a lot of chances to continually explore various mutations. And you know, in many respects, that's how that's how these mutations emerge. They're, you know, the virus is experimenting all the time. And as these mutations emerge, you can never predict beforehand uh, which mutation is going to win out to be uh, to be competitive and have a level of fitness that lets it outcompete the earlier ones. But that's uh, that's what we've seen. Now that we know uh, that there is this Achilles heel or a weak spot that, uh, interestingly enough, has appeared to not change very much across the variants. And actually, we do have a good understanding of why that's the case, because we have the atomic resolution images using cryo-electron microscopy. We have a good idea of why this particular patch might have survived. I mean, one, one way to think about this is you, know, you have this giant three-dimensional landscape, which is the surface of a spike protein. And if you if you are a molecule, a small thing, these, these spike proteins are about maybe 20 nanometers. <clears throat> That's about 20 billionth of a meter. So if you are something that size, what you would see is a very large surface. And antibodies could, in principle, latch on to any one of those sites. However, not every site is equally accessible to antibodies. Sometimes there are sugar molecules that don't let the antibodies latch on very well, and other sites mutate. So it's it's not even though the surface is very large, it's not a given that antibodies can find it. But in this giant three-dimensional landscape, what we are talking about is the identification of a patch that we now know exists. We have a molecule that binds it that particular patch in all of the variants. And now the knowledge of that patch is what we have to, in the next phase, leverage to design using all the tools we have at hand, computational and experimental, uh, therapeutics and, and mo molecules that actually bind it in present variants in circulation and potentially variants that we're yet to see. Uh, but that is, I think that is what is exciting uh, for us and, and my team in, in this work. Clearly, what you'll continue to do now is also try to see how this, uh, how COVID mutates to make sure that the one that you've landed on continues to be consistent through the other ones, the other mutations, I would imagine. Indeed. Yeah, but, but I think the strategy is clear. It'll be, it could well turn out that 
the antibody, you know, at some point, some future variant circumvents this. But at least we, I think we have a, you know, we have essentially a playbook for how to go after this because the goal at all points is to try and stay ahead of the virus. So the fact that we can actually come up with such uh, such a spot to target uh, these antibodies and the design. Uh, that's good to know because we can, you know, this is the exercise we can do and we'll keep we'll keep learning as we go. Of course, the obvious question is, what does this mean potentially um, for a vaccine that is effective against any variant of this? Yeah, so the these, uh, you know, should these, uh, you know, should molecules like the one we described become antibody treatments? They are just that, which is treatments and not vaccines. Uh, so the vaccines that you know, you, you know, we, you and I have had, uh, mess, you know, messenger RNA or other modes, other types of vaccines, they essentially elicit antibodies and also create cells in our body that can effectively block entry and you know mitigate the infection that happen that that you know that might occur with uh, with these viruses. The uh, worry always is, as I mentioned earlier, that antibodies elicited by one particular vaccine or one particular infectious variant may actually not work when there's a new variant. So understanding what the landscape of the viral surfaces in 3D and what regions might have escaped this constant pressure to mutate uh, that the virus actually uses to advantage to be more infectious. The fact that we have this knowledge, you know, we want to use it to uh, develop uh, antibodies that uh, you know have have at least a good chance of being uh, be, being able to block the entry of variants that have not yet emerged but time will tell yeah what is next now i know this is a step by step process you learn as you go um what's de- what's next ahead for you well one of the first things we need to do is to uh, ensure that when we take a look at the very recent variants, you know, you know, we, work like this, as you know, it takes time to get done and, and submitted, but the virus doesn't stop for us. We see new variants like BA.4, BA.5, and other others that are continually coming up. So we have to make sure that uh, and test whether these antibodies and this site remains remains uh, in Achilles' heel in all of the new variants because that's a, a test of you know our hypothesis that this is what it was the last two years. And should that turn out to be the case, then our task is to refine these molecules and make them much, much more potent than even the ones that we have uh, and essentially zero in to improve the design of these antibodies. So the, the, this uh, design of biologics, is, as the pharma industry calls it, uh, this is a very powerful tool where we use the knowledge we have of the structure and the three-dimensional d- landscape of the of a particular antigen. When I say antigen, I mean the spike protein. Uh, to use that knowledge to to create uh, create molecules like antibodies that specifically bind that site. I mean that is uh, that's a very exciting future for molecular medicine. Dr. Subramaniam, thank you so much for explaining this. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. You may have seen this week that Scotland became the first in the world to enact legislation to make menstrual products free of charge in public facilities. The period products bill was passed unanimously by Scottish lawmakers back in 2020, a big moment for the global movement against period poverty. Uh, The bill itself is worth about $37 million. 
Now, the concept a year at least, now the concept is not un- an unfamiliar one here in Canada. There are many similar initiatives, but it is a patchwork approach here. For instance, Canada dropped taxes on period products in 2015. Ottawa's pledged $25 million over two years to create a national pilot project that helps make menstrual products available to Canadians as well. But should we be aiming to follow Scotland's lead? Joining me now with more on that is Danielle Kaftarian. She's Operations Manager at The Period Purse. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. So just a bit about what The Period Purse does. Yes. So we are the, um, a registered charity in Canada, and we focus on um, providing free menstrual products along with ed- education and advocacy uh, to locations all across Canada. Uh, so looking at what's happened in Scotland, I know this was a law that was actually passed quite a while back and now they've acted on it. Uh, what was your, re- your reaction when you saw that news? Uh, we were so excited uh, to see this step in the right direction of having um, free products uh, available to everyone uh, in Scotland. So um, it's just it shows us that this is possible and it's exciting to see. What is the, I mean, to explain the impact and what period poverty is, um, how do you explain it? So uh, there's many different facets to this conversation. So we see people having to choose between, uh, you know, buying a meal or buying a box of tampons. So, uh, you know, there's families that are struggling, especially now post pandemic. Um, You know, this was something before that. And uh, just affording to have these supplies to them, they might not have the money uh, for it or the access to get free products sometimes, uh, depending on where they're located. So it's just, um, it's a very interesting subject to unpack. Uh, who is most impacted by this and, and how it does that impact? How is that impact seen? I know obviously it impacts people who don't have enough money, but also it impacts the young, right? It impacts students. It impacts a lot of people uh, in ways that we may not know. Yes, that's what I was um, touching on with those different layers. So, uh, you know, we have people who can't afford free products um, and might not be able to go to work in school. We know here in Canada, uh, there were some stats generated that one in seven girls are missing school uh, due to lack of of period products. So uh, students are missing school uh, because their families can't afford it. Or quite frankly, you know, um, young bodies are developing and they're learning how their cycles work. And uh, it might be their first period at school and they weren't prepared or there's, you know, it came unexpected. And so they don't have those supplies with them. So we're seeing um, students miss school for that. Uh, We're seeing even in work, um, you know, people might not be able to go to work because they don't have um, the access to products and have products available to them. Uh, So, um, you know, one in three women we know are um, under the age of 25 are struggling to afford period products here in Canada. So um, seeing this step forward by Scotland is going to have a huge impact on different areas of them. And it's something exciting that we're working towards here in Canada. Because I understand just from looking around that it is a a real patchwork here. There are jurisdictions in this country that do offer uh, free menstrual products in different areas like libraries and government areas and so on. How does it work in Canada right now? Yes. 
so uh, exactly, it is it is a patchwork, and um, you know every patchwork we're seeing go through uh, is exciting because it means it's one step in the right direction. But um, there also still is so much work to being done. So we're seeing a lot of cities come forward and uh, put in programming. Uh, a number of years ago, we when we first started uh, the period purse, discovered that the city of Toronto wasn't having any funding for menstrual products in their city-run shelters. So that was something that we advocated for and have as a line item uh, and was a huge accomplishment. However, we also know that they're not um, having enough money still to fund the program fully. So there's still opportunities for improvement there. Um, we see uh, different cities and, you know, like you said, library programs, community centers, um, city buildings starting to put programs in place all across the country. Uh, here in Ontario, we um, saw the, the, the provincial government put in um, free pads um, into schools, but again, there's still some gaps with these patchwork. So no tampons, um, it wasn't in for all schools in the aspect of elementary schools were not included in the program. Uh, and the amount that they received, it wasn't enough to have it in all bathrooms available for all students. So, you know, there, there are steps in the right direction being made, um, but we do see a lot of opportunity um, still to be done. I know. Are, uh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I, I know that that uh, in this country, of course, um, if you look at it, if it's considered a health issue, um, it's provincial. Uh, but would you like to see a federal program here similar to what we're seeing in Scotland? Yes, actually, that was what I was just going to say there. there. So we did see the federal government announce uh, the Menstrual Equity Fund, a pilot program that they'll be doing, um, which will put in 25 million over two years um, into programs. And we did see the federal government also say that they're going to be putting free products into um, federal run buildings. So we are seeing those steps forward by the federal government, but you know we still need to actually get that product out there and get that programming um, done. And it, it takes some time for those commitments to go through and, and make sure that the products get into the right hands. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about too, just seeing it, Scotland's pro program is now available to everybody. Does it make sense to to make it available to those who can afford, but not necessarily prioritize those who can't? Yes, if we have, you know, we saw in the pandemic how things can quickly come. So, you know, no one questions and carries around toilet paper or soap to use public washrooms uh, and, and go out, right? It's just assumed that that's going to be there for you. Uh, and then during the pandemic, we saw the increase of things like hand sanitizer, and even some locations have free masks. And, you know, people took what they needed when they needed it if they didn't have it with them, right? And um, it was just available for everyone and just understood that it's there. So, having free products available to everyone and people are people who need the products will will take what they need and the people who don't is going to leave it behind and it's just having that readily available for everyone is great there's so many also when you start unpacking um, menstrual health um, and issues uh, you know it's it also brings into a, a, the the effect of you know, does somebody have something wrong with their, like challenges with their cycle and maybe they're, they require more product and they're out and they didn't realize they didn't have that enough product with them. So it just having it readily available to everyone um, really helps the whole community. Just in terms of the products themselves, I, mm -hmm. I guess it, it's important that, that women feel comfortable or that people, anyone feels comfortable using these products too. They have to be of a certain standard, a certain quality, right? 
Yes. So that's, that's one thing we're always mindful of is, you know, what is, you know, it's one thing to say you have free product, but are they of good quality? Um, and are they of choice? You know, we see, um, some people prefer pads, some people prefer tampons. There's also great, um, reusable options out there, uh, that, uh, are, are good for many reasons. Um, so having the right product available to people is, uh, super important. Not everyone's going to want to use tampons and not everyone's going to want to use pads. So, um, having choice is something we're always advocating for, um, when it comes to this conversation. So Danielle, in, in a perfect Canada, say five, 10 years from now, what would that look like? So it would look like, um, that everyone, you know, our blue sky goal is that everyone will have the product that they need um, and that they choose to have available to them when they require it. So, uh, you know, that's, you know, it's going to be in the washrooms. There's, it's going to be uh, available to them. They're not going to have to choose a meal over, over this product and having the education around, you know, these conversations and why it's so important. We still see a lot of uncertainty around it and shame and really just changing that landscape would be great. This is, you know, 50% of the population will menstruate at some point in their life. And, you know, this is something that is biologically um, part of our lives and that we just need to start talking about and not being shameful of. So that would definitely be part of that conversation. And that's why we have that education pillar uh, that we try to encourage people to learn more. And thank you to Scotland for getting this conversation started here. Danielle, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.